The Psalms are often referred to as the prayer book of the Bible. As pastor and author Dane Ortland writes, the Psalms are unlike any other portion of scripture because they are the one book in the Bible written to God. In that way, the Psalms are invaluable for the Christian life and have been a source of immense comfort and strength for God's people throughout the centuries. Today, I'm talking with Dane about how the Psalms uniquely reflect the greatness of God, how they demonstrate his care for his people, and how they invite us into prayer and devotion in response. Dane serves as senior pastor at Naperville Presbyterian Church in Naperville, Illinois, and the author of In the Lord I Take Refuge, 150 Daily Devotions Through the Psalms from Crossway. Let's get started. Well, Dane, thank you so much for joining me again on the Crossway Podcast. It's a pleasure to do so. Thanks, Matt. It's uh, becoming a almost a monthly tradition for it us. It is. It is. <laughs> so, the idea of daily personal devotions in the Bible, in prayer, uh, communing with God in that way, is about as basic to an evangelical approach to Christianity that you could have. It's right. kind of baked into the cake um, yeah. from the very beginning. Those of us who have grown up in the church. We just know that this is a big emphasis for our lives as Christians. Mm -hmm. Uh, You grew up as a pastor's kid, so I would imagine that was all the more true for you. Uh, Can you speak to that a little bit? As you were growing up as a young person, how did you think about uh, the idea of personal devotions? It was always very normal to Mm -hmm. me. Not to do necessarily, but I walked down stairs every morning in elementary school, middle school, high school, and my mom was sitting there on the couch in the living room with her Bible open and cup of tea. And um, I am so happy and grateful that Mm. that was normal. That was a normal morning, not an odd morning to see that. So, And I know my dad had similar habits uh, more privately in the home. So I am very grateful for that. And um, it was never, you know, that was never... I was never pressured to do that. It was never mm. forced on me or or like a burden or anything. But the example, that's a powerful example to grow up observing. Mm. Why do you think your dad did it in a more private kind of a way, way away from you? I've never asked him. That's mm. a great question. I don't know. Uh, I find myself to be kind of similar, though. Mm. Um, I need to get in the zone. I need it to be quiet and still and distraction-free, at least for that half hour or 45 minutes in the <laughs> morning, because the rest of my day, the text messages are coming in and the emails and the calls. And so I have to protect and guard that time. Yeah, yeah. So you say you didn't necessarily feel any pressure from your parents to be sort of making a habit out of that, but maybe even more broadly in the, the church that you were a mm-hmm. part of or in the broader Christian culture that we lived in, did, did that ever feel like it was this expectation that if you weren't super jazzed about or super consistent in, you were sort of somehow failing? Probably so. I don't remember particular people pressuring me to have daily devotions, Mm -hmm. Matt. Um, I don't remember ever resenting that or being annoyed by that. If they did today, I'm happy they did. That's there are a lot of worse pressures one could have than to read the Bible and pray <laughs> every day. Um, probably as time went on, I was putting more pressure on myself to do that, mm-hmm. having seen the example and and knowing that I needed that. Um, when, but, when do you think it became a habit for you or a, something that really personally for your own spiritual vitality was something that you just 
you just knew was a priority, you felt mm-hmm. a desire to do it. Mid-20s, seminary, maybe mm-hmm. a little bit sporadically in college. I went through probably what a lot of us go through in terms of just life progress in building the discipline of Bible and prayer in my life, namely, number one, not doing it. Uh, phase two, doing it legalistically. Mm. <laughs> phase three, doing it habitually, joyously, needing it. In phase three, it's like eating breakfast. You have mm. to have it to be nourished throughout your day. And maybe we have to go, or maybe many of us, maybe I'm just weird, but maybe a lot of us need to go through phase two to get to number three. I don't know. If you can skip phase two, great. But the point is get to number three where it is your daily food. So, so yeah, elaborate on that. How does phase two look different than phase three? Um feeling like God's smile has decreased just a smidge over my life if I didn't have time in the Word that day, or if it was hurried or distracted, and very, very subtly, very subtly connecting, building a little a bridge between how I think my morning devotions went or didn't go and God's uh, favor over me rather than viewing the scripture and prayer in the morning as one more way to be assured that his favor is resting Mm. on me, irrespective (laughs) of how I'm doing and performing spiritually. It's so interesting. I think we can get into the the mindset that doing these morning devotions, spending this time in the word and prayer is something we're doing for God rather than for ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I I want to learn better, that I need to get up in the morning with my Bible and coffee to receive. Mm. I am receiving. I don't have something to give him. Oh, I give him my worship and my my consecrated life, I suppose, in some sense. But that's a very derivative and secondary. I need God to go through my day. So I need to stockpile my mind and my heart with God first thing in the day if I want to live a fruitful life. Mm. Do you think there's anything to the, maybe the critique that sometimes comes out sort of in reaction to an emphasis on the idea of personal devotions, making that a daily habit, namely that it's easy to sort of view that as some kind of panacea, that kind of, if, if there's ever a struggle in someone's life, if they're ever struggling with a certain sin mm-hmm. or they are struggling with anxiety or anything, right. that the first question is always, well, how are your personal devotions? Yeah. Uh, is that a valid concern? Well, it could it could be unhelpful if we are formulaically viewing devotions as sort of like you put a coin in the slot machine and out comes the soda, that yeah, kind of a thing. Transactional almost. Yeah, tr- exactly. It's impersonal. Mm-hmm. Um, how awful. But uh, at the same time, while it's not like taking a pill for a headache, nevertheless, yes uh, – in some sense, it is a panacea. Maybe that's not the right definition of panacea, but it is the solution to everything to spend time in Scripture and prayer because God is the solution to everything. Mm. I need to go through my day with God. Therefore, I have to start my day, launch my day with Scripture and prayer. So actually, I have – there are a lot worse things that one could ask someone who has plateaued spiritually than – have you been spending regular daily time in scripture and prayer? Mm. So let's not be overly cautious about asking that. Yeah, yeah. Do you think there's something then especially powerful about doing spending this time with God in the mornings before the day begins? I would not want to put that on anyone because we're all wired differently. Mm. Um, 
I, I can only speak for myself, Matt, and what I find is throughout the day, all those hours of being awake and working and doing life, my mind is building up static throughout the day. So if I try to do it end of day or even midday, I, I can't. I'm too distracted with the swirl mm. of conversations, emails, meetings, decisions. Um, and therefore, when, uh, to put it the other way, in the morning, my mind is most blank. So I want to get at my heart and mind when it's most open yeah. and available to get shaped and helped. Yeah. And for me, that's in the morning. Yeah. And that even ties in then to the broader, you mean a comment about how in your 20s, you sort of made this a habit for the first time. That whole question of like habit formation, sometimes yeah. we can just say when someone's struggling, you should just be reading the Bible more. Just mm-hmm. do it. Just Just do it. And I think sometimes it feels like that can be a little bit simplistic and it doesn't take into account that... Uh, sometimes we need to develop that habit and that, that habit and it's hard. It takes time. It takes intentionality. Yeah. So I wonder, as you think back on your own life, were there certain, I don't know, insights or examples that you saw that helped you to actually make a habit out of Bible reading so that now it, it isn't something that you're having to uh, maybe exert as much will to do right. every single day? Well, it still does take a lot of will because I'm sinful. Mm-hmm. And um, but I, and I really like the way you put the question there, Matt. Um, we don't want to go through life and then once life takes a hard turn, then we'll figure out how to do Bible and prayer. No, let's figure it out now so that we can stay afloat when life does torpedo us. But in terms of what has helped me make a daily habit out of it, the, actually the answer, brother, is my own fear, worry, anxiety, sin, shame, guilt feelings, kids <laughs> feeling overwhelmed by life. I mean, if we are uh, breezily floating through life, who needs Bible and prayer? Yeah. Uh, but uh, because who needs God? Uh, for me, the the answer to build regular Bible and prayer into my life is not a really comfortable chair, great coffee, the particular typesetting of the Bible, an amazing reading plan. All that helps, but it's cosmetic. Mm. The engine uh, is living in a fallen world and fighting not to go cynical. I mean, that's one way. Th- that's what I'm trying to do all day long. Not to put it too negatively. That's one way to understand what I'm doing all day long. I just want to be happy and not go cynical. So for me, it's either. <laughs> stockpile my heart with Bible and pray my way through the day or go cynical. Well, what about the person who's listening, though, and says, but it's on those bad days, it's those difficult things in life that actually, I feel like I can't go read my Bible. I feel like I, I'm not in a good state to do it. My mind isn't isn't there. I feel like I'm distant from God. I've sinned against God in some way, and, and it feels almost like I, I got I to gotta sort of get straightened out there before I really have the, the ability to go meditate on the Bible. Well, I, I don't want to put any simplistic answer, uh, um, response on that to anyone, Matt. Sometimes we are so shut down and so traumatized by life. All we can do is sit. All we can do is be prayed over by a friend. Mm. All we can do is call our mom or dad. Okay, so so be it. Um, but in stiff-arming, in holding at arm's length the scripture and prayer because you just feel like you're too, too spiritually flat or dry is to say, uh, the very thing I need to step out of that flatness and dryness, <laughs> mm. I'm holding at arm's length. So you're, yeah. you're, you're, it's the very medicine you need. All you need is God. And uh, maybe there's uh, other ways. I don't think there are than opening up a scripture 
and praying, which, Matt, I just view as inhaling, exhaling. Mm. I'm inhaling scripture when I'm, I'm inhaling when I'm reading scripture. I'm exhaling when I'm praying. And uh, we have to breathe. One of the things that you've emphasized is just that the Psalms in particular are a great place to, I think the word you use, camp mm. uh, in the Bible, in part because they are very unique uh, compared to the rest of the Bible. So I wonder, could you explain a little bit what makes the Psalms so unique and special, in particular as a place for us to to just to meditate and dwell in our communion with God every day? Oh, if, if we had the Psalms taken out of the Bible, we would be eviscerating the Bible, wouldn't we? It's the heart of the Bible. It is... I mean, the Psalms are the one book of the Bible written to God. The whole scripture is the word of God to us. And in one of those books of the Bible, he flips it around and it's not only his word to us, it's actually giving us words to talk to him. Mm. It's the Bible's prayer book. And so it is training and shaping us in how to pray. So, I, yes, Matt, if we are... Um, we, can, we, we don't have it in us to follow Pauline logic or to trace the historical narratives, um, and we can't even go to the Gospels and see the Lord Jesus, then if nothing else, we can open up to the Psalms Mm. and have voice given to our hearts. It's a uniquely helpful portion of Scripture, especially for when we're suffering or struggling. Right. Yeah. So what's your favorite Psalm then, if you had to pick? Uh, I can't pick one. I I love Psalm 1. I love Psalm 23, 34 has been very important to me, 103, especially the first half. I don't know if I could pick just one. Mm. You know, I think a lot of the listeners would agree that there are favorite psalms in different seasons of life yeah. when we are higher or lower um, emotionally, psychologically. So God always, But God always has a word in season in the psalms. It's the full range of human experience and emotion. Yeah. Is there a certain theme in the Psalms that has maybe in the last year or so been especially uh, helpful for you or comforting to you in your life? One of my favorite themes in the Psalms comes out in Psalm 34, uh, verse 18, which reads like this, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. This comes through in the second half of Isaiah quite a bit as well, but it's all through the Psalms. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. We think, I'm crushed in my spirit. Let me try to work myself out of this and then come to God. Actually, that very state of being is what God is most strongly drawn to. Mm. Of course, the Lord Jesus is the living incarnation of this in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But even in the <laughs> in the Old Testament, we shouldn't have been surprised that the Lord Jesus is drawn to the brokenhearted. God said that's who he is always drawn to. Mm. That Actually, that totally connects to something I was reading through uh, your the devotion you wrote on Psalm 51, which happens to be one of my favorite psalms. Mm-hmm. I'm sure many people mm-hmm. resonate with that. It's a it's a beautiful, encouraging psalm for us when we feel uh, like we are far from God, like mm-hmm. we have sinned in some way. Right. Um, and you, you write in uh, your devotion that David is asking God to be who he is. He's asking mm-hmm. God to act in a way that's consistent with himself. And all that God asks of you is to bring the sacrifice of a broken and contrite heart. Yeah. He gave his son uh, because of that brokenness. Yeah. And that actually made me think a lot of your other book that you've written uh, recently in Gentle and Lowly. Uh, in the book, you you say something very similar about Jesus in particular. You say um, that Jesus is uh, fundamentally, if we were asked to say one thing about him, mm-hmm. 
we would be honoring him to say that he is gentle and lowly. And you say that's not not who he is for everyone indiscriminately, but for those who come to him, mm-hmm. who take his yoke upon them, who cry out for help, uh, that he is gentle and lowly, and that is who he is. I guess I wonder, as you think about Gentle and Lowly and this book that you you wrote that's focused on Jesus mm-hmm. and how uh, that disposition that he has towards us is is fundamental to who he is. Mm-hmm. Did any of the Psalms that, that aren't as directly referencing Jesus, but nevertheless they seem to in many places say the same thing, how did, how did that influence uh, what you wrote in a, in a book like Gentle and Lowly? I love that. The, the Psalms are rolling out the red carpet. Matthew 11 and all four Gospels and what you just said about the Lord Jesus is the throne and person walking down that red carpet. The point is, the Psalms are the perfect preparation mm. for what we see of the Lord Jesus. So, for example, in Psalm 103, Matt, as you know, I mean, the, the Psalm is exulting in, as you just said about Psalm 51, in God and who he is most freely, most naturally, what pours out of him most naturally. Uh, he will not always chide. He will not keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins. I deeply believe in my flesh God will deal with me according to my sins. Exact reciprocity. Mm. What else could he be like? But apparently this text says he does not deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities. Goes on to quote Exodus 34, the Lord being slow to anger, mm. this, this passage that is quoted several times throughout the Old Testament. So by the time we see Jesus walking around on, the, on planet Earth, he is the entire Psalter, the theology of God on two legs, in flesh and blood. Mm. God said he is slow to anger throughout the Old Testament. And he proved it and was a picture of it. What we heard God say in the Old Testament and in the Psalms, we see God in Christ being in the Gospels. They are a perfect complementary fit. Mm. That, that kind of connects then to the, the broader idea of reading the Psalms Christologically. People might have heard that kind of theological term used oftentimes. And I think sometimes we, have a, we wonder, what does that actually mean? How do I do that? Uh, how do I do that in a way that honors what the Psalms were originally saying in the original uh, hearers, ears and minds, mm-hmm. but also uh, understands that all of Scripture is a unified whole and ultimately points forward to Christ. So help us help us think about that. What does it look like to read the Psalms with that Jesus-centered lens? Well, Matt, if we don't read the Psalms with a Jesus-centered lens, we're not reading the Psalms the way Jesus himself told us to. So we're not... Uh, imposing anything on the Psalms to read it in a Christ-mindful way. We're doing what Jesus himself said in Luke 24. All the Psalms were about me. He didn't say, there are a couple of prophetic anticipations of me explicitly in a handful of Psalms, Mm. and then I fulfill those and the rest are... Because that's what we often look for. We're looking for like a prophecy where it's just like a one-to-one, okay, this he talks about this person coming and doing this, and therefore that's about Jesus. And there are those. I mean, Psalms... 2 and 110 are are really laced throughout the New Testament as Christ fulfilling them. But he is the fulfillment of the entire the entire Psalter. The laments culminate in Christ's cry from the cross. 
Christ's lament and are ultimately healed in Christ's own restoring work in the world. The the praises in the Psalms uh, culminate in our praise to God for his climactic work of restoration in Christ. Mm. The, the confessions of sin in the Psalms culminate in Christ's atoning work, which render certain the forgiveness of our sins in Jesus Christ. We know it's proven. We know in black and white objective reality. Uh, the lifting high of the word of God in Psalm 19, Psalm 119, Psalm 1 are ultimately fulfilled in Christ as the word, capital W, of God, John 1, Hebrews 1. So the entire 150 Psalm Psalter funnels into, is clinched in, is fulfilled in, in every way by Jesus Christ. Are there any ways of misapplying this idea that that mm. the psalms are christological that we should read them in that way i mean do you even like that term you, you, i think you said at some point they um use a different word to describe how the psalms connect to christ mm-hmm. yes i suppose that we could overdo it and try to and we could get weird and in every psalm you, you open up to a psalm i've just flipped here to psalm 102 verse 26 you will change them like a robe and they will pass away oh well that must be connecting to us being robed in the righteousness of christ mm. no 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 that's allegorical that's not right that's weird that's bizarre what we want to do is take the original historical intent of the psalms and see how according to its original meaning there it's on a trajectory that is ultimately historically, ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Mm. And Matt, the apostles in the New Testament coach us in how to do that. They connect Jesus to the Psalms. So we just want to follow their coaching and their example. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, What's it like to preach the Psalms? You're a pastor, you're you're preaching every week. Um, Are they easier, Mm. harder than other portions of Scripture to preach? Wow, well, I'd like to grow in that. I mean, I would say preaching the Psalms is connecting the heart of God to the heart of a sinner or a sufferer through the heart of the preacher. It's connecting Hmm. God's heart with their heart. I'm using the word heart because the Psalms are so heartful. Hmm. They are so deeply plumbing where we are really at on a given day, our real-time earthly fallen existence. And it is plunging our hearts into the ocean of God's grace and goodness. And the Psalms are replete. They're overflowing with who God is for us in our need. Mm. And uh, so it's a joy to preach the Psalms. What about the Psalms, some of the Psalms of Lament, say, for Mm. example, where they're they're actually quite dark, and there's not a lot of maybe hope within a certain psalm. Right. Uh, and it can be hard for the individual Christian just reading it, much less a, a pastor who's preaching yeah. this, to, to figure out how to then uh, right. draw out of that some kind of hope, gospel hope. How have you dealt with that kind of a passage? Oh, it's great. I mean, Psalm 88, of course, is the darkest of the psalms, but there are, are more that are like it. A couple of thoughts come to mind, brother. One is, how kind of God to give us passages of Scripture that don't super-spiritualize, give us facile um, assurances that say, come on, give us a little pep talk. Your life is not really that bad. Our lives are profoundly, tortuously dark at times as believers. Hmm. And how cruel to try to tell people, hey, come on, chin up. 
Um, you know, get get a little more caffeine in your life. Um, you know, what's wrong with you? That's cruel. That exacerbates. That doubles pain when we tell people in pain, when we give them shallow solutions. The Bible never comes to us and does that. Mm. It, it acknowledges the pain, uh, number one. Number two, it heightens our longing for heaven. I mean, we it's not the end of the story. The Psalms are halfway through the Bible. And it's not the end of the story. So at the least, we can say, this is a reality in this psalm, darkness. This is the reality in your life, darkness. It's not going to end there. Hang on, and more deeply, Christ is hanging on to you. Mm-hmm. And then thirdly and finally, no, none of us will ever walk through the deepest valley of the shadow of death that Jesus walked through, namely condemnation. We walk through profound valleys. But none of us is ever going to walk through that valley. Mm. That's the deepest, darkest one of all. Mm-hmm. So um, that's great hope. Yeah. What do you think it says about our our church culture that mm. seems like so often uh, we 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 do want that kind of positive silver lining at the end. We do want that uplifting, encouraging final word. Uh, and sometimes even we 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 that word has to be the gospel. But we don't we don't seem to have a category sometimes yeah. for just sort of acknowledging that, yeah, the Christian life, even the Christian life, can be full of profound suffering. Wow. You're so right. And let's agree, not you and me, not to be shallow men. And let's model that for others. And, you know, the Lord Jesus Christ walked around and did not give glib answers. He wept with others. In John 11, as Lazarus had died, and he knew he was about to raise him, Mm. but he entered into the profoundest stress of his friends there and wept with them and was John 11 verses 33 and 38 say he was deeply indignant over what death had done to um, uh, to to bring ruin and wreckage into the emotional and psychological state of his friends mm-hmm. so yes we believe Romans 8:28 God works all things for good but when we are with someone who is in distress let's first do Romans 12:15 and weep with those who weep. yeah have you felt felt that temptation even as a pastor to when you see someone who's struggling who's wrestling with something um, to sort of try to rush a little bit and jump mm. into that Romans 8:28 wow. again it's a truth yeah it's true right. it is it is no I have not and maybe if I had gone, I, I'm sure if I had gone into the pastorate right out of seminary, then I would. Mm. But I'm 42, and I became a pastor seven months ago. It took me 20 years for God to chisel away some of that facile shallowness from me, and there's still a long way to go. But no, actually, I have found it profoundly joyous. Mm. To Last week, I was at two graveside services. One I led, one I did not. What did they need from me? They needed solidarity of sadness. That's what they needed. And I guess one reason that I haven't attempted to do that is um, when I have walked through sadness in my life, I have known how obnoxious and painful it is when people give me theology. I don't need them to give me theology. I need them not to stand facing me, telling me something, but to stand next to me, crying with me. That is profoundly comforting. Mm. It seems like sometimes part of the the challenge here, part of, one of the reasons why we often feel tempted to just throw good theology at someone in the midst of suffering is because uh, maybe we don't have a category for uh, feeling pain and anxiety and sadness and sorrow mm. uh, with good theology. We think that those things, those emotions even, right. are a sign of 
perhaps bad theology? Yes, agreed, agreed. Like if we just if we just were doctrinally deep and precise enough, then we wouldn't really feel mm. this pain as deeply. Not true. Jesus felt pain very deeply. And Matt, we should say, there's a lot of bad theology out there. So we do want to do theology with people, just not when the pain is raw, not when it's fresh. We want to keep um, empowering people over time while they're doing okay with good theology, fortifying them so that when they are then suddenly the bottom falls out and they're in deep pain, they are fortified with that good theology. So Mm. what I'm not saying is let's downplay theology. The point is timing and what people need when the pain is fresh and raw. Yeah, yeah. So another uh, challenge with the Psalms that I think we've all maybe experienced at some point in our lives is just uh, thinking about how to apply them. So Mm -hmm. we've been talking a little bit about uh, just reading them as um, a helpful reflection of uh, our own struggles and Mm -hmm. uh, even uh, pointing forward to Jesus. But as evangelicals, we also are, are very interested in application. We right. always kind of want to know what what difference could this make in my life today or tomorrow. Right. Uh, what do you think about that? Is that a is that a helpful way to approach the Psalms? Uh, yes, if we're asking it in the right way. If we're reading a Psalm and we're we are then uh, simply saying, okay. Um, there we go. Now, how do I apply that to my life? We might actually be bypassing, circumventing, skipping the deeper heart work that God is doing as we are reading the Psalms and meditating and marinating in them. Um, We want to put the Psalms in the crock pot, not in the microwave inside us. We want to let them do their deep Mm. simmering work. And sometimes, Matt, I I don't know if you would agree, I believe we too quickly go to how do I apply this to my life? And it hasn't, we haven't plowed up our hearts first. And so I think what we want to do is, yes, we want to always have that question, how do I apply this to my life? James in the New Testament is very clear. We can't be hearers of the word, but not doers. We must be doers of the word. Absolutely. We don't want to be hypocrites. But I want to be a deep Christian where the Psalms have really plowed up my heart. And sometimes the reading and exegeting and interpreting and praying of the Psalm is the application. Mm, yeah. That is it. Yeah, we always we we often think of application as uh, only expressed in what we do or what we say, perhaps. Mm. But why why don't we think of application as sometimes just how we're thinking? That's a great point. The uh, we are applying the text not only to our hands but also to our heads and hearts. Mm. So we want to and, and actually our hands applying quote unquote. Um, the text of anywhere in scripture, Psalms or otherwise, if our hands are applying it and it hasn't touched our heads and hearts, actually, we're just being Pharisees. We're just, Mm. we're crowbarring ourselves into a certain behavioral uh, adjustment without being melted and lifted into change. Yeah, yeah. What would you, how would you describe someone then who, who's, perhaps they've applied it so much to their head that, um, they know it. They know it well. We, we all know people like this who know Scripture really well, uh, who yet uh, don't exhibit in their own, their words or their, their actions, uh, the qualities that Scripture would seem to teach. And we all have done that from time to time and perhaps continue to. But uh, what we need to do is seek to let our hearts crack open afresh whatever text we are looking at. 
especially the Psalms. Let our hearts crack open. We we will, and not let it reside only in our head. We when we are doing that, Matt, what you just described, when we are stockpiling our minds with truths about God and in the Scripture, actually we're using the Bible. We are not opening ourselves up to it. We're standing over it. We are not sitting under it. And um, so what we need to do is ask God for grace to humble ourselves and open ourselves Mm. up to it and stop manipulating the Bible for our own pride and our own ends. So what's a psalm that you've recently been reading uh, and studying and kind of walk us through what, how you've been uh, interpreting that, how you've been reading that, what impact it's been having on your your life. Oh man. Well, Psalm 23 is one that I have come back to recently uh, several times with others, Matt, because of several uh, tragic um, events mm. occurring in the lives of families in our church. What I love about this psalm, not only is it justly famous, not only should it be knitted into blankets and put on mugs, yes, <laughs> but more deeply, it is so realistic. I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death. I am at my wit's end. Nevertheless, you are with me, and you're this kind of God. You're a shepherd who gives me still, leads me beside still waters and causes me to lie down and take a nap in a green pasture like a contented sheep. That's the kind of God he is. Circumstantially, that's not what is going on in my life or in the life of one of my parishioners, but that's who God is. So Psalm 23, we are all going to die one day, and we have not plumbed the depths of the comfort of Psalm 23. Yeah. Well, Dan, thank you so much for taking the time today to help us understand the Psalms a little bit better and uh, encourage us to to go there, not not as a duty, uh, but as a way to, to get more of God. It's a joy to talk with you, Matt. Thank you. That was Dane Ortland on the Psalms. For more, be sure to check out his book with Crossway, In the Lord I Take Refuge, 150 Daily Devotions Through the Psalms, available online or at your local Christian bookstore. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review, which helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.